Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 156. I'm Jessica Duffin, I'm an endo warrior and endo health coach and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU and I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils and their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community they're getting loads of feedback about it and you know if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's the patch in a bath bomb. Um, so, you know, if you're on your period or if you're in pain, you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them. I don't know, you could have multiple if you want. Um, and then, yeah, get out the bath, maybe rub in some CBD balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but... Um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk. And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you guys that I am holding a free endo belly workshop. It's called Creating a Roadmap for Endo Belly Healing on Tuesday the 5th, and I forgot for a minute, uh, Tuesday the 5th of October at 6pm BST and October the 7th, so that's Thursday, 6pm BST. So I'm just saying BST, British Summertime, because I am going to still be in Greece. So I just want to make it clear what time zone it will be. And in this workshop, you will discover your core endobelly challenges, learn the first, second and third line therapies for identifying and healing your root causes and set goals and next steps so you can begin your healing journey with confidence and clarity. So in the workshop, we will go through a series of activities that are going to help you to prioritize your gut symptoms and which ones you want to focus on the most. We're going to get clear on the outcomes that you want to work towards so we actually know the direction that you're heading in. Then I'm going to teach you the first, second and third line therapies. So these are the protocols, the steps, the strategies that we use in gut health for gut healing. And the first line therapies are basically like your foundational set steps. The second line therapies are slightly more advanced. And then the third line therapies are the specific protocols for conditions. So like SIBO or leaky gut. Um, so I'm going to take you through all of those options. And then from there, we're going to set one to three goals and baby steps. So you can actually map out your roadmap and get started after the session. So if you would like to join you don't have to join live because I will send you the recording the next day, but you do need to sign up so that you can get that recording. So the link to sign up is in the show notes and you just choose the day you want to attend. And if you can't attend live, I'll send you the email the next day. So I hope to see some of you there. 
Okay, so guys, I am again sitting in a difficult position trying to record on the bed. I've already got a cake <laughs> from sort of trying to set up and also trying to see the laptop and try to speak into the mic. So we'll see how this goes. Just apologies again if it shakes and things. It's a real difficult setup here. Okay, so last week I did an episode on um, adhesion formation post-surgery and how that can affect or literally cause endo belly if you haven't had it before. And you guys loved it. I had so many people sharing it on Instagram. I had people reach out to me saying it was like perfect timing for them. So I'm really, really pleased you liked it because I was excited about it as well. Um, and I'm glad that you liked it because I actually had another episode in my mind to follow up with, sort of like a part two in a way. So today, aside from adhesions, I am talking about the ways in which endosurgery could have worsened or even caused your endobelly. Now, of course, adhesions are included in this, but they're a big topic, hence a separate episode. So I encourage you to listen to that first if you haven't done so already, because really the adhesions are the key players here. They're going to make the biggest impact if they do form. But the points that I'm going to go through today are sort of like secondary. So let's dive in. So number one is constipation. The medications like pain relief and some of the other medications that they might use in surgery can be a cause of constipation following your laparoscopy. And even just having to water fast, like, you know, um, a couple, I can't remember how many hours before, but you can't drink for a couple of hours before your surgery and not eating anything before surgery, they can cause constipation too. There's also the possibility that if you don't feel like eating much post-surgery or you're stressed from surgery or your gut feels sore after surgery or you suddenly eat a lot more stodgy comfort foods post-surgery, that may give you constipation. All of those things might cause constipation. Now, a lot of people think constipation is just a matter of embarrassment or discomfort and it's not a big deal, but actually we eliminate estrogen through daily bowel movements. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about excess estrogen and estrogen dominance in the past and how it can be a potential driver of endometriosis and endometriosis symptoms in some of us. However, for many, the symptoms of endo look very similar to the symptoms of estrogen dominance or estrogen excess. And when we have too much estrogen in our bodies or we have estrogen levels that are too high in relation to progesterone, we get symptoms such as heavy periods, period pain, clotty periods, mood swings, breast tenderness, and bloating in the lead up to our periods post-ovulation. So we may think that our endometriosis is out of hand and causing all of these problems, but if we spent even just a month balancing our hormones, we might actually see a dramatic reduction or even a complete elimination of these symptoms. Now, of course, you can have these symptoms of estrogen dominance or excess and the excess estrogen might also be fueling your endo or worsening the symptoms. So you can have both. That's certainly a possibility. But for some of us, and actually for many of my clients, the cause of the symptoms are often the hormonal imbalances themselves. And once we've eradicated those, then symptoms massively calm down. But regardless, we want to ensure we're supporting your hormones, especially after surgery, because we want to build on the good work of the surgery, right? And we, we don't want to have excess estrogen circulating on our system and possibly feeding any future endo growth. 
and it's not that that's guaranteed to happen. We just don't want to. Um, we don't want, we want to create any possibilities, right? We want to build on the good the good work of the surgery. Now, it's not that estrogen is bad. It's actually wonderful and it's essential hormone, but we want to ensure it's at the correct levels and that it's in its healthiest form as high levels and unhealthier forms of estrogen are behind issues like breast cancer, fibroids, and endometriosis. So already you can see that constipation can have a knock-on effect on our health with endo. But aside from this, constipation or sluggish bowels can cause bloating and discomfort in the abdomen as the waste and the gases continue to build up. And this will then of course mimic what we call the endo belly, right? Because we're swelling, we're bloating. Now, as I've said before, I don't believe the endo belly is just the endo belly, right? I don't believe it's just endometriosis. So if you got bloating post-surgery, I wouldn't suddenly be like, oh, your endometriosis is back or, you know, it's growing rapidly back or they left endo there. I don't believe it's one sole root cause. I do believe that endometriosis may be playing a role in terms of the inflammation for sure. But in fact, I tend to see multiple root causes behind the bloating and the swelling that we call the endo belly. And in my experience, sluggish bowels is often one of the causes of the endo belly. So if post-surgery you're getting a lot of bloating and swelling, which I understand that you will get some bloating and swelling for the first few days because um, you're going to have the gases still in your gut from because they inflate our bellies, right, to do the surgery, they actually fill us up with gas. So you are, you are going to have some gas there. That's going to take a couple of days to clear. Obviously, you're going to be a little bit swollen from the inflammation because the body is going to inflame the area to heal. So you are going to get some swelling. So I'm not talking about that natural swelling that is going to occur. I'm talking like, you know, you're getting really, really huge endo belly swelling that's painful, that's uncomfortable, or it continues, it persists past those initial days post-surgery. So if this is you, just consider whether you're having healthy bowel movements you should be having at least one bowel movement a day and it should be long and snake-like with a banana-like consistency. If it's hard, cracked, if it's like pellets or stones or it's difficult to pass, that's constipation. And if you're not going daily, that's constipation too. Often we're led to believe that we only have constipation if we're not going as regularly as we normally would. But that's not healthy, guys. If you go once a week, and then you start going every 10 days. That doesn't mean your once a week was healthy and it's not healthy that you're going every 10 days now. A healthy bowel habit for optimal health, hormones and waste elimination is at least once a day. So if you are constipated post-surgery, what can you do about it? Now, there are multiple things you can do with all of these, but I'm just going to give you sort of like some foundational top level tips to get started. So firstly, don't panic. You might be a little bit constipated for a few days post-surgery as your organs essentially get over the shock of going through surgery, right? It is after all a trauma to the body. And even with the methods I'm going to suggest, it might take a few days to get things moving. So don't worry, just get started with them and give yourself some time. Hopefully within two to three days, we can get things moving again. So my first tip would be to move gently. This is a basic first line therapy that we genuinely use with gut healing, simply to exercise. It's low risk and it's free, 
And I, you know, I'm not saying to jump on a trampoline, but your body requires movement to get things moving and constipation can often be aided with exercise. Now, if we weren't post-surgery, you could maybe do some yoga, you might be able to go for a run or do some Pilates, but clearly we're not going to do that post-surgery. So I'm not talking about that kind of exercise. So just like is suggested in post-surgery recovery guidance, normally, you know, what the doctors tell you to do, just ensure you're getting up regularly and moving around gently for a couple of minutes. I don't mean a fast walk. I don't mean standing up until you hurt. I literally mean every 30 minutes to an hour or further apart, if that's all you can handle, just gently get up and walk slowly around your room or your house for a few minutes. It could even just be one minute to start with, if that's all you can manage. But if you're lying down for eight hours, then things are certainly not going to be moving well in your body. And doing this is also going to speed up your recovery because it ensures that blood is flowing to the area of your surgery and getting to work with healing the wound. So it's actually going to accelerate your healing. Now, you've likely heard your doctors encourage you to move after surgery, but I do want you to check in with them on this because, of course, I don't know the type of surgery that you're having or that you've had. So if you've had a six-hour surgery, then they may give you a different advice. So please do check in with them on this. Next up is a very simple strategy, and that's warm or hot water, drunk slowly in the mornings. Yep, that is literally it. And this actually triggers something called the gastrocolic reflex. I think I pronounced that right. I'm not actually 100% sure. I was supposed to Google it beforehand. And this stimulates movement in the large intestines, creating the urge to have a bowel movement. It's actually the same reflex that might cause you to go to the toilet shortly after a meal. When you, you know, you're chewing and you have a meal, you might need uh, to go to the toilet afterwards. Now that can actually be exaggerated in people with IBS. So if you like get that very urgently after going to the toilet, that's not actually normal. Uh, that's a sign that something else is going on. But trying this warm water or hot water and almost making this sort of like chewing movement, so drinking it slowly and almost like chewing on your water should help you to have the urge for a bowel movement in the morning. You can also try increasing your intake of healthy fats like egg yolks, fish oil, so you know maybe you take an omega-3 uh, rich oil or um, full fat yogurt um, which might be dairy-free if that's better for you or if you do eat animal protein um, go for organic to avoid added hormones to the dairy. And ideally have that fat, um, I mean, you should be having fat with every meal, but ideally um, focus on a fat rich meal at breakfast as that should increase motility. And that basically means movement in the large intestine. And generally we are actually more likely to have bowel movements in the morning because digestion, the digestion has been working overnight and it takes between 12 to 24 hours for the food we eat to actually form a bowel movement. So say you ate, you know, say your your breakfast from the day before, 24 hours later, will have formed a bowel movement. So we tend to have bowel movements in the morning at least. And so if none of these simple at-home methods work for you, so you tried the movement, you're eating a, a breakfast with a nice amount of fat, uh, you're having a hot water in the morning or hot, hot tea in the morning, if none of those simple methods work for you, you can try magnesium citrate or oxide. And this works by drawing water into the intestines, creating looser stores and encouraging the bowel movement, basically. 
Uh, you can safely take between 500 milligrams to 2000 milligrams a night before bed, but normally 1000 milligrams tends to work well for most people. Now you'll need to build up until you find the right dose for you as going straight in at 1000 milligrams or 2000 milligrams might cause you diarrhea. So start at 500 milligrams and increase slightly every other night until you get a bowel movement. But keep in mind, it can take two to three days to get going with magnesium. If you get bloating, diarrhea or abdominal pain from the magnesium, you've probably taken too much and you'll just need to reduce back down until you get to a comfortable dose. Of course, consult your doctor before starting any new supplement. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. Number two is that the stress from surgery, whether emotional or the physical stress of your body undergoing surgery, can turn off digestion. Your digestion is controlled by a part of your nervous system called the rest and digest response. Whereas your stress response, which helps us to power through through stressful or genuinely life-threatening situations, is controlled by a part of the nervous system called the flight or fight response. Now, the two cannot be operating at the same time. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the situation, the stress response will always win because it ensures our survival. This has allowed us to survive and evolve as humanity, right? But in modern times, even just a stressful email might trigger the flight or fight response. And that, in turn, will turn the rest and digest mode off. And the thing is, post-surgery... We really want the rest and digest response to be operating well because not only does it control digestion, it also controls healing. So when our body and mind is feeling stressed from having a surgery, our healing and our recovery time is impaired. But going back to digestion, when digestion shuts off, a few things happen. Firstly, our digestion and motility tends to slow down. Now, for some people, you might get exaggerated and increased motility in the large intestines, resulting in diarrhea, but that doesn't mean things are moving well in the small intestines. So if things have slowed down in the stomach and the small intestine, this creates stagnation and a chance for bacteria to populate in the small intestines where they shouldn't be. Now, of course, that sounds like small intestine bacterial overgrowth, right? Sounds like SIBO, which is a condition many people with endometriosis have. So if you haven't heard me talk about SIBO, it's where bacteria which should be in the large intestine, so bacteria that should be happily existing in the gut microbiome, are actually living in the small intestine. And this creates a whole host of problems and symptoms like bloating, which many of us think is just the endo belly, but it's actually been caused by SIBO, gas, constipation, diarrhea, and abdominal pain, to name a few of the symptoms. Now, this likely wouldn't be enough to cause you to develop SIBO alone. So if you had this stagnation going on because your digestion was being shut off, this likely wouldn't be enough to cause the SIBO to develop alone. Uh, Because once the rest and digest mode is switched back on, hopefully your motility would be working well enough that the bacteria is swept 
out of the small in intestine and into the large intestine where it belongs. However, if you do have adhesions or you have low stomach acid or other risk factors for developing SIBO, it might be enough if you keep returning to the state of fight or flight and you're really chronically stressed. That might tip it over into SIBO. So if SIBO does happen to develop, that most certainly is going to cause what we see as the endobelly, right? Which, I mean, in my experience with clients, most of the time, SIBO is at least in part responsible for the endobelly. So that's one possibility. However, even if you don't have SIBO, that slowed down gut motility and digestion is going to leave food hanging out in your intestines, whether that's in a small or large intestine, and leaving that food in the intestine for a long period of time is going to allow bacteria to have a good munch on that food. And in turn, bacteria make gas. And that, that's the process of fermentation. So then as the bacteria is eating the food, gas is being made and that is swelling our stomachs or our intestines. And additionally, when digestion turns off, we also don't get a release of gastric juices like stomach acid and digestive enzymes. And these guys are absolutely vital for breaking down food and extracting nutrients. So without them, we're going to be having chunks of food in our intestines that can't be broken down and that can result in pain, bloating, constipation or diarrhea. And a side note here is that we really want to be absorbing our nutrients. Our body requires vitamins, minerals, amino acid, glucose and fats to heal, not just for the energy, but for the actual process of healing and repairing our tissue. So if digestion is shutting down and we're not absorbing our nutrients properly, we're going to have a harder time healing and most likely we're going to experience more inflammation and more pain. Lastly, stomach acid and digestive enzymes actually play a role in protecting us from SIBO and bad bacteria. They kill off bacteria as it enters the gut. And so if those levels are lowered, it's like our first line of defense is lowered and bad bacteria can easily move in. Having low stomach acid is also a risk factor for developing SIBO. It's not usually enough on its own, but coupled with another risk factor, it could take us to the point where we develop it. So what can we do about this? The first thing, of course, is to create feelings of safety in the body and lower our stress response. There are numerous ways to do this, but some proven effective strategies for turning off the flight or fight response and turning on the rest and digest response is tapping. And that is a method where you tap on different points of your body and repeat certain statements. Meditation deep breathing, and spending time in nature. There are other strategies like yoga and exercise, but I'm just trying to highlight the ones that you'll be able to do post-surgery easily. So even though you might not be able to go for a run or you know um, do some kind of exercise out in nature, maybe you might be able to sit in your garden or maybe you'll be able to sit by a window or when you get stronger, you might be able to manage a 10-minute walk in the park, for example. 
Now, of course, we can't live in a stress-free bubble. That's unrealistic. And you might have reoccurring feelings of stress about your surgery. So it's not that we're trying to totally remove you from the feeling of stress because, I mean, trying to do that might get pretty stressful in itself. But what we want to do is a few times a day, just take some time to lower our stress response. So the body gets these reminders that it's safe, that you are safe, so it can calm down. So, you know, perhaps you do some gentle breathing in the morning when you wake up, maybe you do some tapping at lunch, and maybe you do some meditation before bed, for example. In the show notes, I have linked to a few apps where you can learn some of these techniques easily. And then next would be digestion support. So firstly, we want to ensure that when you're eating, your rest and digest response is actually switched on. So to do that, we want to be eating in a calm environment and taking time with our meal rather than rushing. If we're rushing or eating when we're tense, the flight or fight response uh, will be switched on and digestion will be switched off. And you can further encourage the rest and digest response by taking a deep breath or a few deep breaths before eating. So you would breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth with the exhale being longer than your inhale. And this helps to turn the flight or fight response off and it turns the rest and digest system on. And then finally, we can further support your digestion by adding in stomach acid support and digestive enzyme support. So you can stimulate the production of stomach acid by drinking one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in eight tablespoons of water 15 minutes before a meal. So drink it through a straw to protect uh, your your tooth enamel. And don't do this if you have a history of stomach ulcers or inflammatory bowel disease. If you have interstitial cystitis or histamine intolerance, the vinegar may also not be the best option for you. So I recommend adding bitter foods with your meals like rocket in your salad, um, as that can help to stimulate stomach acid too. Not dramatically, but somewhat, and it's going to be safer than adding in vinegar, which can burn the bladder um, and can also be high in histamine. Now, of course, always consult a doctor before adding in supplements or digestive support. You can also buy tinctures known as bitters, which are a blend of bitter herbs, and you can take a few drops of that before a meal instead of the vinegar. Again, these tinctures do tend to contain alcohol, so people with IC might need to be careful people with histamine intolerance might also want to be careful as well because of the alcohol. And you can actually take a supplement called betaine hydrochloric acid that literally provides you with more stomach acid. But at first, it's best to see how you respond to these options as betaine HCL is very strong and it's not always suitable for some people. So start here, start with these ones. And if you don't feel like they're helping, I have a protocol for taking betaine HCL in my upcoming course, the EndoBelly course. And I think I think I might also mention it in the EndoBelly podcast series that I did as well. For digestive enzymes, certain herbs and spices have actually been shown to stimulate the production of digestive enzymes. Um, and these spices and herbs are garlic, mint, onion, turmeric, ginger, fenugreek, caraway, fennel, coriander, and cumin. So adding a mix of these two dishes can help to increase your digestive enzyme levels. And a mix is always best because they tend to increase different digestive enzymes 
Um, and you need an array of them. So for example, don't just rely on garlic because it's only going to increase one digestive enzyme um, where you need multiple. So mix it with two other herbs to try and get the best support. You can also use digestive enzyme supplements, which you take with meals as directed on the label. Unless you have a gut health condition, it's best not to use those for more than a month so that your body doesn't become too reliant on them and stop making its own. But um, I do use them longer term for people with SIBO or for anyone with more extensive gut health issues. But initially, you just want to use them for a month. The last way that surgery can cause endo belly and gut problems is by causing leaky gut. So as you may know, the pain relief drugs known as NSAIDs can cause leaky gut. But stress can also cause leaky gut too because the chemicals released in the stress response actually directly damage the gut lining. So your gut might become a little bit leaky from either the stress from surgery or maybe the NSAIDs that you use post-surgery when you're healing. Now, if you're not familiar with leaky gut, I have a whole episode on it, which I've linked to in the show notes. But leaky gut or intestinal permeability, as it's kind of more scientifically known as, occurs when tiny holes appear in the gut lining. So think of the gut lining as a sausage skin. It's a tube from the mouth to the colon that separates what's coming in and going out from the rest of the body. The lining is incredibly thin, just one cell thick. And these cells are tightly packed together with only the tiniest gaps between them to allow for the absorption of nutrients. When the gut gets inflamed or damaged from chronic IBS reactions, chronic stress, NSAIDs, infections, SIBO, allergies, intolerance, an inflammatory microbiome, etc., the gaps begin to widen. And when this happens, food particles can pass through the gut lining along with bacteria and toxins from the bacteria, known as lipopolysaccharides, which I've talked about quite a few times on the show. And while some of the immune defences are inside the gut, there's also a large amount on the outside of the gut lining, waiting to attack anything that passes through the gut lining which shouldn't be doing so. It doesn't matter if this is food or bacteria or a pathogen, so a bad bacteria that's going to cause, you know, food poisoning, whatever it is, inflammatory immune cells will be released. And because the bloodstream is also on the other side of the gut lining, the inflammatory cells can get swept along the bloodstream, causing full body inflammation. So if you have leaky gut, this is going to be happening every time you eat, putting you in a state of chronic inflammation. And additionally, leaky gut can cause gut irritation, creating reactions like bloating, which might appear to us as the endobelly, and IBS issues. And over time, leaky gut can cause food intolerances as the immune system begins to create antibodies to the food that's passing through the gut wall. So then we start to develop food reactions and we have more of that bloating and more of that swelling and more of that IBS. Now, of course, we don't want this to be happening whilst we're trying to recover from surgery, right? We want a healthy level of inflammation that's going to help us heal. We don't want chronic inflammation because that's going to hinder our healing. And we certainly don't want swelling or, ab or abdominal distress putting pressure on our stitches or the internal wounds that have been excised and are trying to heal. So what can we do about it? 
Well, of course, firstly, we want to try and lower stress, as I mentioned before. So go back to those practices that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. And secondly, if we can, we want to lower our reliance on NSAIDs during this period. Now, if you can't, don't worry, don't feel guilty or pressured. Just focus on the stress piece and maybe the next tip that I'll share in a minute as well. But if you can, there are supplements that have been shown to be just as effective as NSAIDs for reducing pain, in particular ginger powder. So ginger has been shown to be just as effective as ibuprofen and methanemic acid for dysmenorrhea, superior pain. It's also been shown to be a wonderful pain reliever in numerous studies for pain like migraines, arthritis pain, back pain, and so on. So it can be literally used as a painkiller. Dose-wise, ginger is safe to take at 2,000 milligrams a day, but it needs to be divided into doses rather than taken all in one go, as that can cause diarrhea. You could start at 1,000 milligrams a day and take it four times a day, so that would be 250 milligrams um, per dose. Or some supplement brands do provide like 500 milligrams a dose. So if that's the one that you get, um, you could start there and you could do two capsules a day or four a day, depending on the level of pain you're in and whether you want to start with 1,000 milligrams a day or 2,000 milligrams a day. And you could just take it daily like this just to keep the pain down or you can literally take it at the onset of pain like a painkiller. Now, ginger is a blood thinner, so if you decided you wanted to start taking it before the surgery to lower inflammation ahead of time because it's, it's such a potent anti-inflammatory, just consult with your surgeon as they may want you to stop taking it for a few days or a week before your surgery date to prevent any um, excessive bleeding. Curcumin has also been shown to be just as effective as ibuprofen for pain relief when taken daily for four weeks at 1,500 milligrams, so it's an accumulative effect. It was also shown to have less GI side effects than ibuprofen, which is great for the endo belly. And also, curcumin helps to heal leaky gut and reduce intestinal inflammation, so it's double bonus, or triple really. Now, curcumin is also a natural blood thinner. So what you could do is take it for four weeks prior to your surgery to gain the beneficial effects and build up that level of inflammation reduction and pain relief, and then stop before your surgery if instructed to by your surgeon. So check in with them ahead of the surgery in case they want you to stop, and then start again after your surgery to continue reaping the pain relieving effects. You'll probably only be pausing your dose for a few days, two weeks at the maximum, but it's likely they'll only ask you to stop to take stop taking it for a week or even less, especially if it's only keyhole surgery. They might not even need you to stop taking it. Now, of course, you might need some more pain relief than those alone, but for some of us, they're enough. And if you're also using some of the other supplements that I mentioned in my last episode on the endobelly, on the endobelly and surgery, then you may not need any additional pain relief because accumulatively altogether they might be enough. However, if you do need additional pain relief, hopefully the addition of ginger and maybe curcumin might lower your need for as many. So you can just kind of reduce the overall amount. Now, finally, I don't want to throw too many supplements at you guys. So 
Um, if you do want some specific supplements and strategies for leaky gut, head to my episode on leaky gut and endobelly healing. That's in the show notes. And you can find specific recommendations for leaky gut healing supplements there. But for now, I want to give you a very simple at-home method for calming the gut and healing leaky gut, um, rather than you having to take a ton of supplements. And that is bone broth. So bone broth contains amino acids and collagen, which both help to heal leaky gut. Now, there are a few caveats to this. If you're vegan or vegetarian, this of course is not the one for you. And so what I recommend is that you just really focus on a diet rich in anti-inflammatory foods to lower intestinal inflammation. Um, support your gut with curcumin and perhaps listen to my episode on leaky gut and try some of the other tips from there as well. The other caveat is if you have SIBO, you might react to bone broth because the collagen in there can actually feed the SIBO. Some people with SIBO do fine on bone broth, but others get bloated or get abdominal dis discomfort. So just check in on how you feel. Finally, if you have histamine intolerance, bone broth is high histamine. So this also may not be for you. You can make a low histamine bone broth by cooking it for much less time. So you do, I think it's two hours rather than 24 hours, but it just won't be as healing for leaky gut because it's not going to contain um, the same level of amino acids or collagen or minerals, etc., from cooking the bones for a long time. So if for whatever reason, bone broth is not for you, and actually even if it is for you, the foundational thing that you can do to support your gut lining to heal is to eat a nutrient-dense diet full of anti-inflammatory foods. Because if we just spend our time recovering eating sugar, alcohol, and fast foods, the gut lining is going to become even more inflamed and any damage from the NSAIDs or stress is just going to be exaggerated. But, you know, if you can add bone broth, it's going to be a wonderfully healing addition to this protocol. So that's it. You have lots of options to choose from. And you certainly don't have to try them all. Pick and choose what suits you, your values and your lifestyle and just create your kind of own tailored protocol and it will go a long way to helping your gut to recover and heal post-surgery and preventing reoccurrence or a worsening of the endo belly. So I hope that was helpful guys. Please let me know. DM me, share it on Instagram share it with your friends or other endo warriors that you know. Yeah, spread the love and let me know if it's helped. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endo life. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe really truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis 
This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Thank you.